Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day has two parts. I'm recording this episode today, March 14th, which is Albert Einstein's birthday. He was born on this date 140 years ago in 1879. And if he wasn't so lazy, he would still be alive if he was going to live to 180. I'm, I'm just saying. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, uh, he was just proven right again by two ultra-precise clocks. They made a pair of atomic clocks from single ions of, you know, this is a word, ytterbium, which never sounds right when I say it, but I know I said it right because I actually did study physics and chemistry in college. Anyhow, these two single ion clocks kept pace with each other for six months, and they're studying something called Lorentz symmetry, which says that the rules of physics should remain the same whether you're standing still, moving at breakneck speed, and no matter what direction you're facing. This is all classic Einstein stuff. Lorentz symmetry is the foundation for Einstein for Einstein's special theory of relativity, which is talking about what happens when we're going at nearly the speed of light. What was cool is that these two positively charged atoms absorbed and emitted light at a particular frequency, exactly like the ticking of a clock hand. They were pointed in different directions. They rotated as the Earth turned and made a full cycle each day, but they kept up with each other which means that even in those weird funky things that tend to break science, they held true. The reason this is relevant to you is that we have lots of these weird funky situations in the human condition, especially studying high performers, people who break the rules. Is it genetic? Is it their gut bacteria? Well, the typical response throughout medical history has been, oh, that didn't happen because it can't happen because we know everything. And what we're finding out is we probably don't know everything. So there are some questions of core scientific integrity uh, that are coming to bear because we have social media. We also have big data and machine learning. And there are a lot of people who have invested billions of dollars in one theory or another about what causes disease, and they're wrong. And it's getting easier and easier to say they're wrong. And today's episode is really cool because you're going to hear what happens in the deep gut, we'll call it the microbiome of science the stuff you wouldn't hear about, about how we come to believe as a species, as scientists, as academics, what is true and what is not true. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. 
They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to a hundred days at neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. And this is an interview with Brian Keating, who wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. He is an astrophysicist who's going to make fun of my cool fact of the day reading today, and a cosmologist, professor of physics at the U.S. Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at UC San Diego. And Brian became a celestial evangelist when he was 13. He saw Jupiter next to a bright moon and just wondered what would happen in a telescope, and he bought one. And since then, he's built and deployed some of the world's most advanced and powerful telescopes and detectors, and he's trying to find the literal edge of the universe. In today's episode, we're going to go over the high-pressure world of science, what happens when you think you're right, or maybe you're just looking at a speck of dust. Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Dave. It's a big pleasure to be on with you. What led you to decide you were going to write a book not about winning the Nobel Prize, <laughs> but to losing it. Well, people haven't uh, heard of your work. Uh, tell me about what happened. Yeah, so the book is is sort of a, a anti-hero's journey of a description of what it's like to aspire to great things on the edge of human capability, along with teammates and colleagues who uh, at various times will be collaborators and friends, and at other times may be competitors and nemeses in various forms. And to actually portray science how it's really done and not this neat wrapped up little bow. Uh, science is messy and science is chaotic and, and oftentimes unknowable. And it has many of the same features that the business world features. And that's been the case all along since the first real astronomer in history, Galileo, to use a telescope, uh, who had a, a lot of needs as an entrepreneur to make money and do all sorts of other things, all the way up to Einstein, who's birthday, as you say, we're celebrating his 140th birthday. Uh, Unfortunately, he's not here. Had he lived to 180, he would uh, still be in his prime. Uh, And it's too bad, as I I often say, you know, that he didn't have uh, any brain octane oil because he he could have gone on to some great things and made some great discoveries. But what's so interesting about science is, and that I've come to learn, is how similar it is to the world of the executive of the business person. Uh, but how little scientists really recognize that growing up and even as mature scientists. So I aspired to win the Nobel Prize as the ultimate accolade, the same way that, you know, startup founders want to get the uh, triple comma club and, 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 and found a unicorn as, you know, things that you've done. And, and you know the intoxication of, of achievement and great success. And in science, you may remember, you know, you come from a family of, of scientists, physicists, engineers, and you know that we're, we're pretty much the biggest grade grubbers there are. I mean, we want to get the highest grade, the A pluses, go to the highest achievement possible, as I'm sure your relatives have, have convinced you of. Uh, so, so you're talking about scientific hubris there. Yeah, there's a lot of that, but there's also this need to be, to be judged, to be graded, to be, to be scored and compared against history's greatest. And there is no A plus. I don't get any grades anymore uh, since I was a first-year graduate student, right, 20-plus years ago. And and for scientists, the last you know grade, the ultimate A plus, is winning the Nobel Prize. And there are some books written about winning the Nobel Prize. You'll be interested to know. And 
I always say those are about as useful as, you know, books on how to win the lottery or, or how to, you know, winning bingo strategies, because not that it is purely based on luck, but there is a luck element in particular longevity, which I know you're very interested in. Uh, you have to live long enough to see your, your ideas, theories, experiments validated. But to me, the experience of losing something and failure and resiliency and humility, that all came together in this book. And I realized, you know, most people haven't won a Nobel Prize. Most people haven't won an Oscar or a Grammy or, um, or, or another type of accolade or a high school class president for that matter. And so how, it's how you deal with adversity and the failures that you encounter that make scientists, you know, lives very similar to other people that you might encounter, despite the stereotypes, scientists are normal people. <laughs> you talk about how, uh, you know, you, you want to see how you stack up, how everyone sort of wants a Nobel Prize. It reminds me of a book by Candace Pert, who I didn't get a chance to interview because she passed away. She wrote a book called The Molecules of Emotion. And it goes into great detail about how at the National Institutes of Health, there's this competition for, uh, you know, for the Nobel Prize in medicine and uh, how nasty the politics are and how competitive it is and how there's this one thing you don't tell someone in the lab. Uh, and, you know, it, oh, sorry, I meant to tell you and now you don't win and I do. And uh, it really highlighted for me how we got to where we are in many different fields where if you don't agree with the predominant paradigm, you can't get funding. Uh, no one will talk to you. You don't get invited to the parties. And it seems like this is happening more and more, whether we're talking politics, um, you know, autoimmunity, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. It doesn't really matter. Like there's, it's getting really one-sided everywhere we go. Is it that bad in physics now? Or are we pretty much all in agreement that if, you know, you're not studying the cool thing now, no one even knows your name? No, it's very much as you describe it. In fact, I was on, um, I was on a show with Scott Eastwood, who's Clint Eastwood's son, and he's an actor in his own right. Uh, he's been in a lot of movies. And we were talking about how the parallels between the Academy, uh, which, by the way, it's the Academy of Motion Arts, Pictures, or whatever, and Sciences. So there's science in the title of the Oscars. And, and yet they do things much more, you know, kind of uh, uh, holistically, shall we say, than the, our Swedish counterparts who award the Nobel Prize in physics and literature, medicine, et cetera. Uh, I said to him, I said to Scott, look, you know, I don't think you're in Hollywood, but, you know, I don't think like most major studios are expecting a movie, you know, like a crummy movie, like let's just say The Fast and the Furious, you know, is going to win an Oscar. But, and he said, let me interrupt you. I was in The Fast and the Furious. I said, well, I didn't mean, you know. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> yeah, I did. I swear. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all there. But he's very gracious. And I said, look, I don't think you thought you were going to win an Academy Award for that role that you played, nor do I think the studio did. But you better believe that, you know, uh, the analog of Hollywood producers are the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, Department of Energy. They want, just as the movie studios do, they want a certain number of their films to win the Academy Award. In fact, some of what they do in the popular side where they make these blockbuster, you know, Captain Marvel, whatever movies, um, are really to support the more artsy, creative, intellectual films that do go on to win Academy Awards. So it's just like that. There's a herd mentality in a certain sense. And there are plenty of colleagues, I have to say, that do it for the purity of the science. But when I, you get told things as a young professor that you won't get tenure unless we think you have a good shot at winning a Nobel Prize, or you say things like, you know, the, the main defining characteristic of a scientist in their obituary 
is that they won the Nobel Prize or almost won the Nobel Prize. It sets up this dichotomy of idolatry, as I call it. And I think it's very pernicious and ironic because scientists are supposed to be free of prejudice, idolatry, you know, religion, worship, things like that. And yet, I think we're some of the most susceptible to these biases um, uh, that, that, that exist in society. Well, I'm hoping that just talking about this moves the needle a little bit for people listening. If you just believe something is absolutely true, everything we believe about reality is a theory. They just yeah. asymptotically approach <laughs> being an absolute truth. But there's right. probably a corner case. And all the interesting stuff is the corner cases. You want to do time travel? I'm pretty sure it's not easy. Uh, right. You want to live to 180? I'm also pretty sure it's not easy. Or maybe beyond. There's all sorts of stuff. You want to turn off cancer? Just one person has done it somewhere or is doing it right now. It's just, it's not evenly distributed. And when science acts as an immune system to ignore those things instead of focus all of our energies on that one person who seems to know what you're thinking and can do it reliably. And you could say there are no people like that out there. Heck, I don't know. But everyone who claims it, like, let's let's either prove that it's not happening or let's figure out why and then let's make it teachable. That's what's cool. Yeah. I mean, look, I get a lot of emails every week that say, you know, Professor Keating, you know, Albert Einstein was wrong. Here's why I can prove I'm right. And, you know, most of those go to the waste bin uh, in my in my email. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, sometimes you do get gems in the rough. I, I once got an email from from a woman and she said, I got some really speculative ideas and cosmology I'd like to talk to you about. I was about to delete it. And then I saw, oh, by the way, I won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> from President Obama last year. Would you like to go out for, oh, sure, I'll undelete that email. And we went, her name's Ray Armantrout, and she ended up writing a poem about the collaboration, the conversation that we had over a period of weeks. And it became ranked as the one of the best poems of 2012 in America. And if I had been closed-minded and said, look, this she's a poet, she doesn't know anything about physics, uh, it when you diversify your curiosity, when you explore different realms of, of activity, the brain is the most phenomenal, as you know, you know, computer in the world and, and uh, in the known universe. And it may be the only type of computer of its kind. And some of the work that we do here, you know, revolves around possibilities for artificial intelligence and quantum computing and things that, you know, a decade ago would have seemed impossible, let alone a hundred years ago. So, uh, you know, I salute the people that really are ambitious and those moonshots and the, and the difficulties as our mutual friend, you know, Peter Diamandis speak about, speaks about, that's how progress gets made. It's, you have to have a certain amount of boldness, but when you're in a operational field like mine, where most people don't get their first research grant from the government until they're in their late thirties or early forties and, and by then, you know, maybe some of their greatest kind of years are behind them in some sense, and including myself. Uh, it's it sets up a world which is, you know, has all the negative aspects of the business world, you know, punishing failure, et cetera. But it has very few of the positive ones of entrepreneurial spirit. So unless you win the Nobel Prize, you're probably not going to get rich in academia. That's right. In order to be on Bulletproof Radio, one of the sort of filters that I run is I want someone who's, who's a game changer, someone who's breaking out and doing impactful things in their field. And it turns out a lot of the time uh, there is financial success, but no one's targeting that. And you know, Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize, has been on the show, <laughs> and uh, some other people at, at high levels of achievement. Uh, but they, they all kind of share that perspective that, that you know, the, being the best is a motivator for them, uh, regardless of whether it's measured in, in dollar signs. And in business even, um, I, I measure success in number of people who who use bulletproof products, not necessarily in 
you know, the highest possible revenues or dollars or things like that. In other words, I'll, I'll spend more to make it convenient for someone to start doing it, uh, even if I make less on it, because I like a world where people are well fed because then they're nice to each other. Mm-hmm. Everybody wins. <laughs> and so you, know, you can you can look at impact or you can look at dollars. Uh, and I think you're you just have an impact filter, which is great. But I got to ask you. When is time travel going to happen? <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of news circulating about time travel uh, just recently from a couple of different uh, particles that uh, were shown to potentially inhabit a configuration, a sort of state space that they existed in at a previous time. Uh, it's very That's very primitive, I would say. Uh, it, it's not known whether or not time travel between, you know, for macroscopic objects is possible. This, you know, sort of shows in principle for microscopic objects. Now, if you're an atomist, if you believe that we are essentially an, a giant assemblage of microscopic particles, then, you know, in principle, there's no reason why something macroscopic could not be teleported back in time. Let me, let me just take a step back. Your listeners are undoubtedly familiar with the fact that it's possible to move forward, backwards, up, down, left, and right in the three dimensions of space. Uh, however, you may have heard also that there's something called space-time, that the man born on this day, Albert Einstein, pioneered this concept of the intricate interlocking of the concept of space with time. And yet we all know, at least, you know, despite your question, uh, that we can't, we can go uh, any direction, positive or negative in space, but not in time, at least as far as we know currently, uh, or we have not been able to actually teleport back in, in time. However, there is nothing in the laws of physics themselves. If I showed you a pendulum swinging back and forth, you couldn't tell me if that pendulum movie of a pendulum is running backwards or forwards. Similarly, if you looked at the at the uh, orbit of the Earth from above, in a sense, and and I didn't tell you which direction you were looking at it from, you couldn't tell which way the which way time is going. In other words, the laws of physics are independent of the time parameters, positive or negative sign, and that implies that there's a symmetry. And that going back in time could, in fact, be possible. What I'm connected to in my research is the ultimate origin of the universe, which seems to be, in one class of models, the ultimate stopping point. In other words, there's a time before which you could not return. So if time travel is possible, uh, it, would, it would beggar you know, a lot of questions. For example, you know, what if you tried to teleport back to before there was a universe to teleport into? Uh, that's a question. And so the the main you know focus the main answer to your question is I don't know I don't think anybody knows when time travel will be possible but I will say that it's not believed to be fundamentally forbidden by the laws of physics and as the late great Richard Feynman said uh, and others have said uh, anything that's not forbidden is mandatory. All right, I actually I really like that as one of those people with oppositional defiant disorder. <laughs> it, it just resonates with me. Uh, so you're you're saying, all right, maybe it's possible. It certainly hasn't been proven impossible that we'll have time travel at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're looking at the beginning of the universe, and certainly you'd want to understand that. So what's your current theory? Are you a Big Bang guy? I remember my, my son's like, Daddy, I'm grateful for the Big Bang, because without it, there wouldn't be anything. I'm like, that's pretty cool <laughs> gratitude, but I'm not sure that's true. What, yeah. Is he right? So uh, throughout human history, and even back to the, you know, biblical days, so, um, you know, not taking a position on, on religiosity, if you think about it, the the Bible begins with basically the Big Bang. You know, how did the universe begin? And why is that? The, the rest of the book's about, you know, like, 
different kinds of food you can't eat with other types of food or, you know, ways that you do this or that for a tribe of nomadic Semites uh, in the Bronze Age. So why did it begin with the Big Bang? And and I think the Big Bang is a story. It's, it's built into our consciousness as human beings, this quest that must have an origin. Human beings are very uncomfortable with their not being... Uh, with their with them not being in the middle of a story and media rays, it's called like almost everything. Your life, I mean, you only know who your dad was because your mom told you, and you trust your mom, right? So uh, no, I um, use twenty three media to verify. Oh, uh, that's uh, that's true. You do, you do. <laughs> Just and, kidding. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you go back in time, you know, far enough, you might reach a time where there was no. You're not in the middle of anything. You're at the beginning of it. So what's so interesting to me is that throughout human history, from the ancient Greeks as I said, from the Bible to the ancient Greeks to modern day Einstein himself, believed the universe was static, unchanging, and eternal. Uh, and the Bible was sort of standing in opposition to that with the, what could be read into it, that there was a beginning, a time equals zero. And what's so interesting to me is throughout the last hundred years, the more that we learn about the conditions that prevailed at the earliest epoch that we can measure, which is my field of study, uh, we are learning that it's uh, potentially impossible to know not only if there was a Big Bang, uh, in other words, if there was a single Big Bang, uh, but we may not be able ever to know if there are other universes with their own Big Bangs. That's called the multiverse. And similarly, we may not be able to know if our own universe is just one cycle out of a potentially infinite number of bangs and collapses and Big Bangs and Big, and big Crunches throughout eternity, truly eternity. And the human brain is, you know, even with all the octane oil in the world, it's very difficult for human beings to conceive of the implications of the number infinity. It's the most baffling kind of concept, and we think it's only accessible to human consciousness, and yet we don't really have a visceral feeling for what it means. So to answer your son's question, everything we see is consistent with the Big Bang, except for the origin of the Big Bang itself. In other words, we don't know what, what banged. We don't know what caused the Big Bang to occur. We don't know if there are other Big Bangs going on right now, or if there were other Big Bangs in the past. And similarly, and lastly, perhaps we don't know if our universe will last forever or will come to a to a, a fiery end in a trillion years. But you know, I say, keep paying your taxes just in case. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Some of my favorite people uh, to get in, in deep conversations over coffee with are physicists, but also people who are PhD philosophers, and it's very hard to tell them apart <laughs> uh, in, in terms of the thinking model because. The question of how did the universe begin also, it's almost identical to the question of how consciousness began. What is your work in physics showing us about how consciousness may have arisen? Yeah, I actually speak of the three questions I would most like to ask, uh, you know, a supreme being, uh, mother nature, whatever, as, you know, what caught, what was, you know, what was the nature of the origin of the universe, the real Big Bang, what we call the Big Bang. Then the origin of life must have come at some point from non-life, right? There must have been some molecular combination of uh, enzymes, proteins, amino acids, whatever you want, uh, that formed the first biological organism in the universe, perhaps here on Earth, perhaps elsewhere, as some speculate, concept called panspermia, which sounds dirty, but it's not. Uh, and then the origin of consciousness. These are the three big bangs. You must have had an origin of the universe ex nihilo, potentially, from nothing the origin of life from non-life, and the origin of consciousness from non-consciousness. Uh, these are the great, greatest puzzles, I think, that exist. And in some way, my research touches on all three of them. Obviously, through the origin of the universe, we build telescopes. We build 
detectors. We build sensors that are cooled down nearly to absolute zero, cooler than the freezer in the background in your office. Colder than my cryotherapy chamber. Then it goes to 260 below zero. that's nothing. I go to 454 below zero Fahrenheit. Uh, then there's the um, the the um, obvious, you know, creation of life from non-life, which some of the earliest work in that was done here at UC San Diego by um, <clears throat> Harold Urey, who's uh, uh, did an experiment with his graduate student Stanley Miller on the origin of what they thought was the prebiotic Earth atmosphere composition, and they put some sparks and lightning and out emerged some some amino acids from that and that was the origin of life you know supposedly it turns out there are some flaws in that we can get to and then the origin of consciousness we have uh we have a great deal of of thinkers and and people here that study consciousness what we do i'm the co-director of what's called the arthur c clark center for human imagination which was licensed the name is licensed to us from the arthur c clark foundation so it's a great honor to work with this great scientist but science fiction author and we bring in people from around the world, including someone who, if you haven't had on the radio show, you should, Roger Penrose, or Roger Penrose, who is responsible. He's probably the greatest living physicist. Um, uh, it was contemporary of Stephen Hawking, was actually advisor to Stephen Hawking many times. And he believes that you know, consciousness is one of the most you know, kind of diabolical mysteries that there is, because you're trying to study yourself in the same way you can't really tickle yourself. I, I don't know if you've tried, but it's very difficult to make yourself laugh if you're ticklish, just like it's very difficult to put yourself in a basket and pick yourself up. So we don't know if it's even theoretically possible to study the origin of consciousness using the consciousness that we have. In other words, it might take another three-dimensional system, a quantum computer, a, a, a room temperature liquid, you know, not unlike a brain, to study the brain. Just as the same way, it's very hard to study things that you are a part of. Uh, psychology on yourself is very difficult to do, uh, unless you're, you know, really good at uh, meditation, etc. But in this case, the, the problem with consciousness of those three big bangs, the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin of consciousness, uh, I feel consciousness is the most mysterious because we can't even agree on what a definition of consciousness is. Right. There are a great many people who believe in what's called pan consciousness or pan psychism, which would mean that not only do your, does your brain have consciousness, but the uh, bulletproof coffee that you drink, the molecules have consciousness too. And well, they, they do. I, I put it in there. It, it's actually uh-huh. part of the third step of distal. Okay. Just, just <laughs> kidding. By the way, th- thanks for the plugs. And just, just so you guys all know, uh, I don't even know if Brian uses bulletproof coffee or anything like that, but he's kind enough to mention it. Uh, so thank well, you. Well, yeah, yes, yes. Well, yeah, as you know, the famous uh, mathematician Erdos said that a mathematician is a machine that converts coffee into theorems. So <laughs> oh, that is a beautiful it. quote. We, we do use it. Uh, that should be, you know, and you could get that license for free because he's long dead. Anyway, um, yeah, the the consciousness problem of of actually having having fundamental attributes of what we you know it's kind of like the supreme court definition of pornography like you know it when you see it uh in this case the you know consciousness sort of you know it when you see it and you know it when you take it away uh there's a researcher that that sir roger penrose works with named Stuart hammeroff at the university of arizona who works on these things called microtubules um he and i disagree a lot on the fundamental basis of consciousness but what he he's an anesthesiologist so what does he do he makes people unconscious all day long and from the studies of before and after anesthesia, he's developed these theories of consciousness that are very controversial, but again, point to the fact that in this field, 
there's no universal definition of consciousness. And it makes it very difficult to make progress when the lexicon vocabulary is not agreed upon, even in principle. So it frustrates me to deal with that. All right. So it, it's awesome in academia. You say, well, there's this theory, there's that theory. All right, straight up. You have a $100,000 bet on where consciousness comes from. Where are you going to place it? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, wh- where... I love it. You're already, you're already yeah. going off in the professor land. All right, come on, give it to me straight. Uh, I'm thinking about all the slide rules I can buy with. Them. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, I still that's use the best them. answer ever. I still use them. Uh, so I, I would say it's it's most likely a, a quantum phenomenon, which doesn't help because uh, actually the phenomena, quantum mechanics, the the uh, properties of the very small microscopic uh, behavior of light and matter are some of the most mysterious laws of nature. Again, this famous physicist Richard Feynman said, if somebody tells you that he understands or she understands quantum mechanics, they're a liar. That's the only thing you know about them. Uh, and we're learning more and more each day about kind of how ignorant we are. But I would say there are properties of quantum mechanical systems that demonstrate the same types of behaviors as the human brain. Uh, and it's called neural networks uh, that can be processed. The problem is that um, to actually assemble and test these things, we're at really the abacus level you know, now of quantum computer. It's so primitive. And so the amount that we can actually learn from it, I would say, is pretty small. But yeah, if you're forcing me uh, to, to stake my bets, I would say it originates as an emer- some kind of emergence phenomena from the collective behavior of nearly infinite numbers of quantum mechanical systems. But there's a big mystery as to how you can have a liquid, wet, room temperature quantum computer. All our quantum computers nowadays are basically almost at absolute zero temperature. And so to have a quantum computer at room temperature, i.e. your brain, it's very mysterious. But I do believe there there must be a link between the two. But again, this makes the problem so underrepresentative of what it actually is. It's, 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 we, um, we do know that our, uh, some parts of our nervous system are superconductive at room temperature, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, the superconductors that we study in the laboratory, the record for room temp or for what's called a high temperature superconductor is not really that high. Uh, it's, it's actually about minus 150 Celsius or so where it starts to superconduct. Uh, in other words, exhibits zero resistance for your listeners that might not know what superconductor is. It's an actual quantum mechanical phenomenon discovered by one of my teachers at Brown University, uh, Leon Cooper and colleagues. Uh, and this phenomenon is uh, was not well understood and still is not very well understood how it occurs near uh, at higher temperatures than at, close to absolute zero. Um, I love the the very polite academic way of saying, Dave, that sounds like <laughs> bullshit. Um, I, that, that was what I translated I through my quantum filter. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm quoting uh, Robert O. Becker in a book called Electromagnetism in Life. Uh, which is a, a fascinating read that really helped. I think I read it in the early 90s. Uh, and it really kind of sh- helped to shape my, wow, there's a lot more going on. And he's talking about like the Hall effect and things you can you can get yeah. off nerves that just aren't well, called look, out. Look, if it were true, I would be the biggest backer of it. I mean, I would love to see that book and I will make a note to look at it. But look, if it were true, we'd be using, you know, we'd be extracting this superconducting uh, material from our bodies and using it to do uh, levitating trains and communication with zero resistance. So there would be wonderful application. And it would have, you know, it's like when people say, oh, homeopathy is real or this is real. And the big drug companies, you know, my, my wife's a big proponent of it. I don't want to ascribe too much negativity to it. And I believe it can help. And look, placebo is the most effective drug ever invented, right? But, but so I don't want to rain too much of people's parades. But it's not like uh, Pfizer is going to say, oh, here's this wonderful herb that we can basically get for free from 
from uh, from Taiwan, and we're just not going to use it because we uh, we can't patent it. I, I just think that's very cynical. And so similarly, if there is a superconductor in the human body, uh, there'd be billions of trillions of dollars of potential revenue for commercial applications. Um, I actually had the same thought uh, when I, when I read the book, uh, mm-hmm. and I am completely willing to be proven wrong because while well, I studied computer science. Uh, not physics, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and not medicine. <laughs> a lot of well, people think some, I'm a doctor. Some of my best friends are computer scientists. Uh, yeah, they they share a lot with uh, the philosophers, uh, and uh, and some with physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, getting back to this whole consciousness thing, I, I I love being able to talk about it from a physics perspective. You talked about an an emergent phenomenon uh, that happens from a highly distributed system. Uh, I believe that. Uh, most of our egoic behaviors, in fact, the ego itself is an emergent phenomenon, an emergent consciousness that's held inside our meat uh, that comes mostly from mitochondrial uh, priorities. Uh, going back to Stephen Wolfram's book, uh, which you've probably read and maybe even understood, unlike me, a book called A New Kind of Science. Uh, that yeah. just To sum up this incredible book full of equations that I don't understand, uh, is that if you take very simple rules and repeat them almost infinite numbers of times, you get very amazing, complex, beautiful things that don't look like they're based on three rules repeated you know, 20 kabillion times. Uh, so I think some of our behaviors are that way. But in companies, uh, and I've you know, studied business at Wharton, and I'm a reasonable entrepreneur, there is an emergent behavior set that isn't necessarily conscious. It's what we would call company culture. But it's those hundreds of thousands or millions of micro decisions made every day based on a certain goal. Uh, and so I, I don't think in my experience, almost, I would say almost none of the people running big companies have evil uh, in their, in their heart. They're, they're not out there. No one would ever say, Oh, I'm going to screw the planet to do this. Right. What they're saying is I'm going to you know set, set this direction, set this goal. And then, you know, 2 billion micro decisions later, evil happens. And they scratch their head and say, oh, that can't possibly be evil, therefore it's not. In, in the, the classical scientific hubris, and then you right. get Monsanto or you know whoever else we're talking about. Uh, sorry if they fund you. Yeah. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you look at that, you're saying, all right, so there's some kind of a quantum thing going on. How does that affect what you do on a daily basis? I mean, I mean are you kind of living up in the clouds there? I mean, do you wake up in the morning going, I'm going to meditate on my quantum nature and <laughs> increase my performance? Like, like what's the so what behind all this for yeah. you personally right so um so i agree with you 100 percent. just taking uh rewinding three or four sentences you talked about you know the culture of entrepreneurs and leaders and ceos so whenever you say ceo or you say startup or you say company or entrepreneur i want you to think experiment or scientist yeah. <laughs> and because we're exactly the same i mean there's no doubt in my mind i once said this to one of my professor colleagues look I have payrolls, I have travel, I have expense reports, I have receipts, I have shipping, I have receiving, I have logistics, I have all the stuff that you do uh, in the business world. And then he said, well, but you don't have to, you know, uh, you know, a business person doesn't have to teach 40 hours a week on top of it. Um, so that being aside, you know, that putting that aside, still, we have the same needs, same urges, and same ego-driven mo- motivations, except in our world, again, it's not for financial. If you look at some of the greatest uh, inventions, look at Einstein. You know how much money he died with in his bank? The smartest man who ever lived allegedly won the Nobel Prize. Uh, Could have won it seven times, according to most physicists. He died, you know, a couple, maybe $100,000 in today's dollars. He, uh, look at people that invented the GPS, the laser. The laser, the the transistor, Shockley and, and other people. These guys died almost penniless. In his case, he was insane. Shockley, he was a eugenicist. 
He wanted to rid the world of African-Americans uh, through bribery. Uh, just an awful human being. Damn. Uh, and on the same token, they, so the, the notion of scientist as beard-stroking scholar and intellectual quiet bookish, that's total nonsense. Even going back, as I said, to Galileo. Galileo is the prototypical scientist, the lone genius working by himself and discovering things and then wanting to promote himself, make money from these discoveries and support his enterprise. Because what is the credit? What is the dollar sign, you know, equivalent for scientists? It's citations, it's credit, it's influence, it's setting the priorities for national agendas in science. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Look, I think there's an, you know, there's an inclination towards good. And then sometimes, as you say, it'll spiral into a Monsanto, you know, who used to sponsor my research until now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, but the, uh, but the actual, you know, uh, the stock and trade, the, 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 the exchange of medium of exchange is credit. And so when you have anything for credit, look at like Neil Armstrong. I mean, did he die with like billions of dollars? No, he died relatively middle class. Uh, and yet, you know, he wouldn't trade that experience for all the money in the world. And we have to look at ourselves as people. So what I do every day, just getting back to the second to last sentence, you, have, you know, is, is really I try to be a little bit different because I'm running an enterprise, a hundred million dollar experiment in Chile that has 245 employees, if you like. Some are much more senior, much more brilliant than I am, much more renowned. And uh, down to graduate students and for, you know, 18 year old freshmen that work in our labs. And I have to somehow get, you know, get them the funding, the, the resources, the travel, the, the screws, bolts and nuts that they need to do their actual work at almost 18,000 feet above sea level. And I look at it and I say, well, how would a business manager do this? How would a business person do this? And I started reading every day. I try to read as part of my alleged, you know, morning routine uh, after, you know, meditating for four hours. Uh, actually, I should say, I once met the Dalai Lama um, at UC San Diego. And he said, and somebody asked him, what's his daily routine? He goes, I wake up and I meditate for five hours and I almost threw up because, you know, <laughs> you could tell he doesn't have any kids, right? <laughs> right. No one with kids is meditating for five hours. But anyway, um, so what I like to do is to read books by Andy Grove. Or I, I read books by Ernest Shackleton's daughter or granddaughter and about how do you manage a culture. And right now I'm reading a book by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And it's so interesting to me because I keep reading his book and, and I've noticed it elsewhere. We are scientific entrepreneurs. We are merchants of truth and light as we're supposed to be. Uh, but we actually end with why. We're terrible at promoting and marketing ourselves. And instead, I think... You know, we we could really learn a lot from the business world, and to not do so, I think, is at our own peril. Let's talk a little bit more. So, yeah, five hours of meditation, right? I, I actually did two hours of meditation in the morning until I had kids eleven years ago, and realized kids have an uncanny ability to know when you're meditating because that's when they're going to scream and ask for attention. And if you say, "I'm going to wake up early," they're like, "Yeah, I'll wake up early too." So, yeah, it it helps to have an army of monks helping you meditate five hours a day. Exactly. Um, and and great respect for the traditions that have done that for thousands of years to study human consciousness, but it's work. Yeah. Right. And you have other work to do. You're, mm -hmm. you're seeking another kind of truth. Uh, you know, running a hundred million dollar project is uh, much less internationally is, is not at all uh, trivial. Mm -hmm. I want to know though, to be a merchant of truth and light, you must have a brain that's on. And that was what attracted me to interviewing you. If you're going to be at the elite levels of science, you've got to be able to notice these facts and do the numbers and ponder and be like a high performance ponderer and draw models in your head. And I know that when I'm in the phases of my career where I'm running strategy 
for technology. Where's technology going to be in five years and how do we make sure we're at the middle of that? It is such a demanding but nebulous task that I found it to be high energy. It's stimulating, uh, but it's it's also exhausting. What do you do to to turn your brain on so you can lecture the way you lecture and then pick up the phone and talk, I'm assuming with the president of Chile or something, mm-hmm. and then switch to something else? It, exactly. It's kind of exhausting. What's what's your regimen for that? Yeah. Well, um, you know, so I'm Jewish and and in our tradition, uh the called the Talmudic tradition, there's a famous statement that a man should have two pockets and a woman too. Uh, and those two pockets, and this is the philosophy I live my life by, those two pockets should have two different messages. In one pocket, it should say, the universe was made for me. In the other pocket, it should say, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. In other words, you should you know, have this concept that you're eventually, your life is finite. And, uh, and yet, there's a richness to the universe that you, look, the universe doesn't, if you don't exist, Dave, does the universe exist? I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, you don't know what exists other than this kind of construction that people have made for themselves as to what their definition of reality or consciousness is. So I know we're getting a little off track, but, you know, I I actually say, you know, people think I'm really smart, but I still have to sing the alphabet song to know what letter comes after Q. And, and, you know, it's just a different kind of of intellectual pursuit. I I will say I'm very similar in some ways to you in that I don't like, or other people that try to achieve at a high level. I don't think it's something magical or special about me. But I think the the secret weapon that I have is this passionate curiosity. I, I have an unyielding scholastic intellect that I, I'm interested in literally everything. There's nothing that bores me. And when my kids say, I'm bored, daddy, I say, you're boring. You're, you're just like, there's something that you're just not here. You have this gift called life. And yeah, I hope I lived 180. I don't know if I will. Uh, I hope I live much beyond that, to be honest with you. Uh, but but on the other hand, uh, who knows how much time we all have left. And so what I try to do in life is maximize every moment. And that might mean, you know, not getting enough sleep, not doing the meditation, not doing this and that. But uh, but to me, it's this it's this unyielding desire to know as much as I can while I can and be productive, um, and contribute to this chain of knowledge. And, and, but, but I have to say, I had much baser desires when I was a 25-year-old, 30-year-old uh, in this field. I wanted to win a Nobel Prize. That was my focus. That was my goal. That was my idol. That was what I was going for above almost everything else, uh, to the point that I really, I did create an experiment that was you know, going to be a, you know, a shoe-in for the Nobel Prize if our results held up. And uh, from the title of the book, you can tell that they didn't. And the episode, the aftermath of that episode really affected my own self-reflection as to why I'm a scientist. You know, I could do other things. I could probably program a computer pretty well. I actually like working on cars and doing physical labor. And that's that's something I've always been good at. <clears throat> but, uh, but the bottom line is I'd never take it for granted. Uh, I'm here by a whole lucky string and sequence of events. And, and I aim to take advantage of all that. And I really want to know everything. And that, that's, that's what drives me in life is, is the humility that, you know, I've made some huge mistakes in my life and I'm going to take advantage of the lessons I've learned from those mistakes to capitalize on it and hopefully, um, hopefully make the, the universe a better place. So how do you go about doing that? Uh, one thing that, that attracts me is that your observatory is at 17,500 feet. I first had yak butter tea at 18,000 feet in, <laughs> uh, in Western Tibet. And I'm like, wow, my brain just turned back on. Uh, so you're physically challenging. I, I mean, that's pretty much mountaineering territory. It takes time it to acclimate and all that. It's base camp of Everest, basically, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And 
I mean, your physiology is very different there. Your brain actually requires oxygen in order to do its maximum thing. So you're sitting there trying to do this. Uh, the travel there is rigor, and you're at the highest possible demand on your brain. You know, do you? What do you do for that? Yeah. Uh, is there is there an astronomer diet? Is there, uh, you know, do calisthenics, uh, cryotherapy in the morning? I, I have no idea. But like, what's the day in the life of a high altitude, high astronomer. consciousness, high demand astronomer? Yeah, so we didn't coordinate this again for your listeners, but I do feel like of all the of all the professions that could benefit from a bulletproof lifestyle, astronomers are some of the most uh, likely to benefit. Why? Because we have totally messed up circadian rhythms where we have to work at night and we're up during the day like vampires. We have to operate at extremely high altitudes for long periods of time. And it's not like I have no offense. You know, I think a lot of skiers, I'm sure Lindsay Vaughn is brilliant. Uh, but, but you know, she's not relying on doing mathematical calculations and, and operating heavy machinery and, and uh, dealing with science at the literal highest level on Earth. Um, when she's up at those high altitudes, astronomers are. Well, she gets uh, a break. I mean, she trains, but... Right. And, and how long is she up at high altitude? Yeah. Two minutes. I mean, if she's good, she's not there very long. Right? She's <laughs> well down. Um, so the, the other thing is we're, we're also dealing with extreme cold environments. Uh, my research in the book is, takes place in the South Pole, Antarctica, the very bottom of the world, where it gets to 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Uh, and you can do things there to rejuvenate your soul. So one thing they have there, which, you know, uh, I don't know if I want you to do it because it would mean, you know, probably a six month break from your family, but they have something called the 300 degree club and the 300 degree club involves using the sauna at the South Pole. There is a sauna. There's a basketball court. There's a sauna. It'd be surprising to learn for your listeners, but there's a sauna. They heat it up almost to the boiling point of water, which is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And then they go outside in the middle of winter. This is usually on J June 21st, which remember is the winter down there. They'll go outside. It'll be 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So you've got a 300 degree change in temperature. It's more than the cryotherapy, or at least they, they use it for more than the cryotherapy. And the, the goal of this experience is to go outside, run around the geographic South Pole naked, because if you wear clothes, you're going to get frostbite in some places you really don't want to get frostbitten in. And you're only wearing boots. And to do this, you join the 300 degree club. So again, these are things where astronomers go that normal people fear to tread. And, uh, and there, there hasn't been, although I think there should be, because when I send one of my graduate students to Chile, for the first two or three days, you know, she's useless or he's useless. I mean, their brains are foggy. Our base camp is about 9,000, you know, 2,000 meters or so. Uh, yeah, 9,000 feet. And then they go up to 18,000 feet. Sometimes in the winter, the day of productivity is only six hours long. It takes an hour to get up and down the mountain up to 18,000 feet almost. And so uh, I've been thinking a lot about how do you acclimatize people? There's researchers here in San Diego, uh, Frank Powell and others that have a high altitude research station on White Mountain, which is the, the second highest mountain in the U.S., or, uh, one of the top mountains in the U.S., 14,000 something feet. And we've talked about how you would acclimatize a student before they go down to Chile. Do you want the answer? Yeah. I mean, I actually know this one. I know the chamber, right? No, no the chamber is expensive, oh. huge pain in the ass. Although you having a hyperbaric chamber up there would be good. We're talking about 400 bucks in 20 days ahead of time. Okay. Uh, there's a little company no one's ever heard of. I don't have a deal with these guys. Um, what they do is they make a, a little oxygen scrubber. And you breathe for an hour a day through this thing until your blood oxygen level drops. Mm -hmm. And then you 
breathe normal air until it goes back up. Then you breathe again until it drops. And you do this for 20 days. And after that, you're acclimated to 15,000 feet elevation. Wow. And I mean, seriously, all the way acclimated. And the reason this was invented, it makes me happy. Mm -hmm. uh, Because uh, the Russian mindset on physics and uh, just on on all hard science is different than most of the rest of the world and and admirable. Mm -hmm. So- they thought about this from a military perspective. And they said, you know, pressurizing an airplane is really expensive. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be cheaper if we just made the pilots so they didn't need pressurization up to <laughs> 15,000 feet? Imagine how many more jets we could have, right? Right. So they developed the basic algorithms to do this. Very cool. So I, I would be very interested in that because when I send my student down there, you know, it's $1,000 a day per student. You know, if you got 10 students there, that starts to add up into your research budget. And so making them hit the ground and the mountain running, that would be a worth, you know, a couple thousand bucks for each, each student over the course of their career. The other thing that would probably be uh, profoundly effective, I haven't seen it studied specifically for acclimatization, but it's, it's a very similar, it's basically high intensity interval training for the oxygen receptors on, on your cells. Uh, mm-hmm. It affects how easily uh, hemoglobin uh, the, the oxygen carrying molecules in your blood, how easily it lets go of oxygen uh, when cells demand it. Essentially, that's what's happening with accl- acclimatization. Oh, wow. There's some other things too, but mm-hmm. uh, we do something uh, called, uh, let's see, um, we call it intermittent or high intensity intermittent hypoxic training uh, mm-hmm. at uh, in Santa Monica at Bulletproof Labs and at the Beverly Hilton. And what you're doing is you're riding an exercise bike, breathing air that has no oxygen, but now it's under load. The thing I talked about before was just sitting at a desk watching Netflix and sort of wanting to pass out. Uh, But now you're under load and it changes things much more dramatically. So you you switch from no oxygen in the air you're breathing, and then you switch to 100% oxygen. Uh And it takes about a half hour to do this. And it is an intense workout. It just, Mm -hmm. you're pouring sweat. You don't even know what's going on. You're a little bit dizzy. Uh, but it forces your cells to be able to react to more rapid changes more rapidly. Mm-hmm. And um, that is a, a very potent mitochondrial enhancement technology. And we've measured that with some of the gear we have there. But it, the, the point here is there's all kinds of things you can do uh, that will affect high altitude. We've actually uh, had uh, one of the the big organized camps climbing Everest mm-hmm. uh, send photos of Bulletproof Coffee from base camp because they're saying, oh, Turns out the Tibetans knew something when they were putting fat in liquid like that. Right. Uh, yet we also know. And they go up there with that oxygen, right? They're up there with that oxygen yeah, to the Tibetans. No oxygen, no vegetables. What are you going to do? Well, butter. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there's also the fact that you need more glucose. Uh, it's easier to burn glucose than ketones in a, in a low oxygen state. So maybe you want to be ketogenic before you go there. You want to put some brain octane in your stuff to get some ketones because it's nice to have them. But maybe you should have you know, a little bit of raw honey or switch to some more starch. Mm-hmm. I don't know the full answer there, but uh, it seems like people in a ketogenic state do very well at high altitude. Yeah, all, all those ideas I think are really valuable. As I said, you know, just practical costs of going up there. And then, you know, it's a really weighty thing to think about. I don't like to think about it, but there's a decent chance that someone will die, you know, building this experiment. Uh, simply just taking the tables for uh, for people that have died in the construction of other high altitude telescopes. And that's not lost on me. And, you know, and whether it's a you know, car accident, as recently happened in Chile on a telescope project, um, uh, and usually, you know, it's 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 an accident. Uh, it's not something that could have been foreseen. But who's to say if you know had a little bit extra, 
you know, brain boost that that could have avoided it. I'm not a medical doctor, although I do prescribe medication to certain people. Uh, but the uh, that's legal now in California. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the but the thing is, you know, could you could you actually prevent a, a, the loss of a life? Uh, that's that's a, a really weighty thing that that I think about quite frequently. Uh, well, I I believe that anytime we're in academia, if you can do something to make brains work better, uh, especially something that's non harmful, that you're wasting your tuition if you're not doing it. Um, in fact, I don't think I've ever talked about this. Back in uh, 2003, I was at Wharton mm-hmm. uh, long, long before Bulletproof. You know, Bulletproof started. I started as a blog basically in 2012, and I'm looking at uh, at this call it a senior thesis for an MBA. It's not really a thesis, but it's a big project. And I put mine together around this idea that I was going to create cognitive enhancement compounds, what we call smart drugs and nootropics today. Uh, and I already knew how to do it. I, I took them to get through school. And I said, no one markets these to, to parents of college students saying, you just spent $100,000 putting kids through school. You should send them a bottle of this stuff because their brains actually will work better. And the name of that product was going to be Unfair Advantage which is a name of one of the mitochondrial enhancers at Bullet. You still have it. Yeah, you use it. Yeah. And, and the the funny thing is my proposed ad campaign was, it's good to cheat. I'm saying, hey, you know, you take these drugs, maybe you don't have to study as hard, you know, or not drugs, these, these you know, herbals things. Uh, and the professors are like, that's really good, but we hate it. It's so bad. It's so dirty. Like, like could you not say that? Uh, so with that, that was my idea. And I ended up not doing it because I decided I would, um, well, uh, go through a, a breakup and then go to Tibet and learn meditation from the masters instead, which worked out all right. Yeah. And I think things turned out okay. Yeah. It's that idea that, that cognitive enhancement belongs in academia more than anywhere else because I mean, mm-hmm. students do two things when they're young. Let's learn how to have healthy adult relationships and let's learn how to learn. Right. Uh, and professors, I feel for you. I, for five years, I ran a program at University of California teaching working engineers how to build modern internet stuff. Right. At Santa Cruz, right? Yeah. It kicked my ass. I, I mean, mm-hmm. just the, the level of demand. I was exhausted after a lecture. Do you get exhausted after a lecture like that? Yeah. Although I, it also enter, you know, gives me energy as well because you know, you're performing. You're, you're a theatrical character, an actor. And how often in society do you get to do that? And uh, you know, professors aren't known for our diminutive egos, right? So we like to be up on stage. Uh, but it is exhausting and you do, you do kind of come out of it a little bit, uh, drained from the day. So I only do it later on the day. I don't like to, to, to use up all the, you know, kind of willpower in the morning, so to speak. And, and just, I try to get some other productive work done. Then I put everything I have midday into teaching and then, uh, and then try to wind down. And that's really the hard part. And I think, you know, in terms of lifestyle enhancement, well, first of all, I think a lot of students would benefit from proper sleep, not more sleep, as you always say, but, you know, kind of proper sleep and they, you know, obviously getting rid of alcohol would be a huge plus for, for most students. But I, I also believe that they should just as they, you know, they should delay gratification in, in some other ways. Like I think most college students, and I'm a professor saying this against my own financial interests, but they benefit from not going to college for a little bit and actually working in the, like, cause yeah. think of how much you expe- having experience in the business world then also academia, then back in the business, uh, you might not have appreciated if you went straight through to your MBA, you know, right after, right after college or whatever, you might not be where you're at, uh, necessarily. Maybe you would, but I think, you know, kind of 
they say the human brain isn't really fully mature until age 25, which is why you can't rent a car most places until you're 25 because they, they expect your brain needs to be fully mature before you can drive a, uh, a used a 1999 Hyundai, I guess. But, <clears throat> but in any case, the, uh, the maturity level that you approach college students with, and I've noticed this because I teach in something called the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, which is found at many universities around the world. And any of your listeners over age 50 should take advantage of this if there's one locally. They have professors like me who come in and give either a series of five classes or maybe just one class called a master class. And we teach about a subject that we're really passionate about, try to cram an entire you know, semester's worth of learning into you know, four weeks or one week, depending on how long the classes are. And I get 190 elderly people you know, from 50 on up. I don't think 50 is elderly, but anyway, that's the cutoff. And, uh, and they appreciate it so much more. And they're like, oh, you know, I wish I had you when I was a kid, you know, an 18 year old. And, you know, I think, well, you probably would have, you know, not benefited just as my 18 year olds don't really care about it. Uh, but but you know, <laughs> we just appreciate so much more later when you look back at the life of the mind and how just how much of a, of a privilege it is to be in academia as I am to dedicate my life to learning and teaching. And it's interesting, the word in Russian, you mentioned Russian scientists earlier on, the word scientist in Russian means someone who was taught. It means that basically this person was taught by somebody else. So from, from that etymology, what do we learn? It means that science is kind of an oral tradition, a passed on received wisdom tradition that also requires that you pass it on in the future to pay back the debt to people that pass it on to you. And I feel very honored to be to play a very small role in that in that way. And you know, and in, in my in my course of my research, I've been honored to to create, you know, 10 PhD students. And I've got another nine in the tank now to get their PhDs in the next few years. And one of my students, when she graduated, she made a plaque for me and I have it, a replica of it in my book. And it shows my genealogy going back to the 1500s. Uh, and it's just so amazing to think about, like, I'm just this one person, you know, in this 17, 18 generation long you know, uh, 23andMe kind of version for academia. Uh, and it's an awesome privilege and it's, it's a wonderful experience to have as well. That goes back to your Talmudic uh, perspective on the pocket full of dust. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that feels like it really matters. And overall scheme of things, I had someone in interviews sometime that like, what do you want your legacy to be? And I thought <laughs> about that. Do you, do you know what you want your legacy to be? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've thought about this a lot. You know, for me, uh, I have a lot of children, thank thank God, and I've got a lot of uh, students. And I think they're basically the same. Your student, uh, teaching somebody is an act of love. Uh, it's an act of trust. It's an act of vulnerability. And it's an awesome responsibility, um, especially in this day and age. And, and I do feel like uh, that, is my, that is my mission in life, is to create souls, so to speak, or lives, and, and to help people become, my goal is for them to all be more successful than me. I mean, who looks at their kid and says, I hope they're not as good as I am. <laughs> you know, I want yeah. them to have a, a worse life than I have. No, you never say that. You want them to be, have a better life than you have. So not only does that apply to my, to my biological children, but applies to my ideological children. I want to create as many souls, as many lives as possible. And I want them to surpass me every which way that they can and be, uh, and be that force multiplier. You know, if you think about it, Everyone, let's say you have, I don't know how many employees you have, but if you spend a little bit of time teaching them this act of love and it increases their, their throughput, their efficiency 10%, it might take you two hours and that's a lot of time, but if they work 2000 hours a year, 
you're going to be adding thousands of hours over the course of, of time just from you investing a tiny bit of energy into the teaching process. And so imagine that biologically for your own children and for your ideological children, the people that you work with. So that's my goal. That's my legacy. I hope that I create a lot of children. Uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful answer. Uh, mine was, I actually don't care if anyone knows my name other than my, my close friends and family after I'm dead. <laughs> I don't, that's not what it's about. Uh, but I do care very deeply about making the world a better place. Uh, but it's, it's not so I'll be remembered. It's because it's what makes me happy. Like I, right. I, I see the system and I want to hack it. And so that's what I'm going to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. I look at it and I say, you know, you could change the Russian language, you know, term from scientist, you know, hacker could be, you know, one who was hacked and you hacked your biology. I think, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a worthy goal to, to take on. All right. One more weighty question for you before we get up on the end of the show. And it's okay if you want to skip the answer. We touched on human consciousness. We touched on the beginning of the Big Bang. We touched on uh, you know, your Jewish heritage. Atheism, science, belief in God, can they coexist or not? Oh, it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about, actually. Um, I have sort of this annoying aspect of my personality that I like to be... Hold on, uh, hold on. You're a physicist. You have many. <laughs> That's right. I, I was going to say infinite, denumerably infinite. And one of those is that I like to give grief to people on both sides of the religion and science debate. I like to uh, say that in my own personal opinion, although I do practice Judaism, I attend a synagogue, I, my, uh, you know, kind of philosophy, guiding philosophy is, is Judaism. I've had this conversation with Freeman Dyson, who's one of the greatest physicists of all time, as I said, Sir Roger Penrose. And, and, um, and they agree with me in that, that the most a native state for a scientist, someone who's a curious researcher, scholar, is to be an agnostic. Now, most people think of agnostic as, oh, I just don't know, and I'm kind of wishy-washy. But really, those are atheists. They just don't have either the courage or the inclination to call themselves atheists, right? Because they're, they're not going to the same church that Richard Dawkins doesn't go to either. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can't tell the difference between most agnostics. You know, they're not really agnostic, because they're not actually learning or studying or or really participating in this theological tradition. Now, do I, you know, do I raise my kids that they should, you know, stone an adulterer? And no, but I also don't think of it as as uh, sophistically and as simply as, look, these are these are different things. The word science itself, not in Russian but in Greek, science means knowledge. What it does not mean is wisdom. And so, when I read a book by the late great Stephen Hawking, I get a lot of knowledge. And I learn new things and I learn about science and it stimulates my brain. What I don't get is wisdom. It's not a, a textbook, a brief history of time. It's not something I'm going to use to raise my children. I'm not going to use it for teachable moments and lessons in parables the way I would use it. And, you know, you're talking about your legacy. So one author I, I heard once said I would trade 100 readers a year from now for one reader 100 years from now. In other words, you know, I hope my book is completely outdated in most realms, the scientific content, in 100 years. But I hope the wisdom within it is, is permanent, you know, and it sort of endures. And so, too, if you look at the Bible, the Bible is the best, you know, I wish I had 1% of God's sales numbers, right? <laughs> you know, it, it's the best-selling book of all time, and, you know, there's a reason for that. It has a depth of wisdom, which I don't think is available. You know, the, the Psalms say, you know, the beginning of wisdom comes from the belief in God. 
But I also feel like people put a little too much faith in God. So my really religious friends will say when it's raining, they'll say, oh, God makes it rain. No, they didn't. You know, it caused a condensation event occurred, a nucleation on the dust grain that caused it. And where did the water come from? Oh, God made the water. No, not exactly. I mean, God made, uh, you know, you could say hydrogen and oxygen make water. And I keep pushing that chain of logic back. And I say, at the ultimate, you'll get to a question. The question why? The answer will be because. And we just don't know. But that doesn't mean we should stop thinking. And, and, that's what makes it so nice. I can be an agnostic, but I'm a practicing agnostic. I'm a, I'm a devout agnostic to, to, to really answer your question. And I think it's, I can, I can hold my own with either side of the debate. And I don't really feel like it's so much of a debate after all. I think that kind of sells and, and there's a little sizzle in that, but ultimately both things, science and religion are a quest to find ultimate answers, but they don't overlap each other. They're not necessarily related to one another. And so for that reason, they can certainly coexist the same way you can, you know, be interested in meteorology and, and the history of the National Basketball Association. Uh, that's a, a very beautiful and, uh, and nuanced answer. Uh, and I, I stand with you there. Uh, if you think you know the answer 100% on either side of that, well, any scientist will tell you you can't really prove right <laughs> the, the lack of anything that statement takes faith it takes a lot of faith to make the statement it that sure you know does. <laughs> and so if you're a scientist who's on either side of that really i like to stop using the small s in science and use a big s like you do for a religion because you're practicing a religion and the bottom line is we're pretty darn sure that this, this is the nature of reality one way or the other but once you stop being curious about it you stopped the first step of the scientific method which is observation. Yeah, yeah <laughs> And right. if you believe your hypothesis so fervently, you will ignore your observations. You're doing science wrong, and that's and, why. I, I, yeah, I I agree completely. I mean, when they when you suffer from, you know, kind of this bias towards authority, and you you worship the great atheist, or you, you know, it's very. It comes to me, and for me, it was the worship of the Nobel Prize, which which came down to basically an idolatrous quest to get a tiny golden engraven image, you know, as a way to validate my self-worth as a scientist. And I realized it had a very destructive effect on the, my soul and on other young scientists as well. And so it, I came to see the pursuit of the Nobel Prize as a religion of its own, except its adherents are mostly atheist when it comes to formal religion. Where does your self-worth come from now that you've seen the fallacy of chasing a prize that probably won't make you happy even if you get it. I realized that the thing that I like to do the most, uh, it's kind of like with your kids, you know, when they solve a jigsaw puzzle or they do a Rubik's cube uh, and, uh, and then they'll do it again. It's like, why, you know, why do they have to do it again? They already did it, but they'll do it again because every time they do it, they get a tiny little spark of that excitement that they felt when they solved it the first time. When you solve a puzzle in your lab, it's like when I solve a puzzle in my lab, it gives me a taste of solving a puzzle, of solving, you know, finishing that crossword puzzle. You still, you don't just stop. That's not the end of it. I keep doing it. And that to me is addictive and I'm unapologetic about it. I think it's a healthy addiction to have, to want to increase this, 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 you know, it was called by John Archibald Wheeler, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. He called science is basically a battle. You're living on an island and the island is called knowledge and the ocean that surrounds the island is called ignorance. And as you expand the island, the size of the island gets bigger. The coastline that divides the ocean of ignorance, you know, that boundary gets bigger too. 
but the area increases faster than the circumference, so to speak. And he, what he said is our job to figure out as many puzzles as possible. And I like to do that as well. And I think it's a, it's a very healthy thing to want to want to solve. That's my motivation as a scientist. And then, of course, you know, that's only part of my overall identity. I think a lot of what I see myself is now as a sort of getting older as a scientist is to be is to you know be a role model in the sense of you know making sure people are doing science for the right reason as i said not for the pursuit of of this very capricious goal brian final question on the show i've been asking people the question that became game changers uh, and really my my quest for wisdom uh, from many many people and distilling it down uh, but I changed the question because I've been running an anti-aging group. You know my numbers, at least 180. Yeah. How long do you think you're going to live? Hmm. Uh, well, I don't know how long I think I'm going to live. Uh, I often think about, you know, what I want to know the day I'm going to die. Like, what, do you want to know that? Um, you might want to because you might want to change that. I was going to uh, say, I would just hack it. Sure, tell me. Exactly. You're wrong. Right. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so I would like to live as long as possible. And, and actually, you know, and that could be the upper limit of human longevity. I would say, you know, if I delude myself, I could live to 112 because I think that's one of the oldest lifestyle lifetimes with quality of life. I think, you know, you could probably put, make someone a vegetable and they could live pretty long, but I would say quality of life and having intellectual capacity to appreciate it. I'd want to see all the scientific discoveries that are coming in the future uh, not just from what I do, but from the infinite array of brilliant people around the world that are just as driven, motivated, and passionate as I am. I want to see what they come up with uh, because it's 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 not at all obvious to me, and, and this might be a topic for another time, that there is even life that exists throughout the universe besides us. So this might be the only planet, not only that has life, this might be the only planet where life has ever existed in the 14 billion year history of the of the universe. And that, to me, is not terrifying. It's actually very inspiring because it makes me want to live forever, in a sense, and learn as much as possible uh, during the time of quality of life that I hope to have. Beautiful answer. Brian, thanks for being on the show. Your book is Losing the Nobel Prize. And it, it's actually worth reading for that wisdom thing we talked about. And it's also worth reading if you're in business or academia or science and you just don't understand why dumb stuff happens in science, uh, I think there's a pretty good explanation of what's going on behind the scenes before something hits PubMed, before something hits you know, Science Daily or any of the websites you probably go to, uh, at least on occasion, if you listen to the show. Uh, there's so much going on, and I get to peek into that. And I'm not a full-time academic by a long shot. So talking to Brian here today has been illuminating for me in reading his book, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize. It's it's worth your time. It's an easy read and it's exciting. And you just wouldn't believe that the world is the way it is. And uh, both from a cosmology perspective, but also <laughs> from a, here's what's happening when you're not looking perspective. Uh, so thanks for your work, Brian. Thank you so much, Dave. If you like today's episode, there's something easy you can do to say thanks. You can leave a review on iTunes. Uh, for the book, for the show, and pick up a copy of Brian Keating's book, Losing the Nobel Prize, uh, if this episode appealed to you, because uh, reading or listening to a book like that is one of the fastest ways to put good stuff in your brain instead of junk. Have an awesome day.
A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.